again. I want to say hey to the folks over in Traditions. If uh, you prefer and God meets you in uh, more traditional music, hymns, uh, my grandmother, before she went home to be with the Lord, both sets of grandparents actually would have probably been there, even if I had been in here, which is okay, because um, they love that. God met them in those things, and so we know that's important. So we just want to let you know that's always their second service. They're right across the hall. We can all kind of give them a wave. Hey, guys. Um, but thankful for you, thankful that you're listening in and we can be together. Um, as I watch that bumper every time, uh, I think about my kids, for sure. Uh, they're 21, 18, and 16 now. And so the thought of sending them out into the world is something we think about all the time. Our oldest graduated from college. Our middle is almost out of high school. And our youngest is just another year. And so you think about those things. You pray about those things. You want to know how God is going to take care of them. And if what we have said about Jesus and about following him will stand up to living in the world. I think we all think those things now, even if we're adults as well, right? We're wondering daily. So today's title is from, if you have a Bible, turn to Acts chapter three, but it's the proof of the pudding. How many have used the phrase, the proof is in the pudding? Yeah. You know that phrase? Okay. So I was looking it up and thinking about it because I've, I've used it. I've heard it. But I just wondered the, a little bit of the etymology. How, where did this phrase, this idiom come from? The actual original phrase is the proof of the pudding is in the eating. In other words, you could say the proof's in the pudding. You're like, oh, yeah. Well, I'll tell you if it is. I'm going to try it. And if it stinks, I'm going to say there's, it's not proven, actually. The proof of the pudding is in the eating. In other words, I need to try it out to see if it actually will stand up. There's a little bit what's happening in this passage this morning is the church is newly formed. Got a lot of new, a lot of people, 3,120 at least in this church. Um, they've been meeting, hanging out, and now they're going to take it out. Try it out on the world. See what happens. A little bit of what we're trying to do when we are called to fulfill a great commission, but will it stand up? Will the Lord's words, will the gospel, does following Jesus go beyond this room? Is kind of the question. Does it work out there? Is it real? Can you trust Jesus? Not just on Sunday, not just at your Bible study. Can you trust him with the things of life that are happening around you? Now, don't forget this Acts is part two of a two-part letter slash book, one guy to another friend, Luke to Theophilus. And you know what Theophilus was asking? Can I trust it? Not only can I believe what was said about Jesus to be true, but can I trust it in everyday life? Theophilus is trying to decide that very question. And it's for us as well. Can we trust the resurrected king. And it's not just him as Luke is telling the story. What do you have? You have a whole group of people, a few thousand asking the same thing is what's going to happen when we take this on a test drive? Will the Lord stand behind his word? And can we say, Lord, does this thing work or not? Will it start? Classic scene in a movie, predators bearing down, you know, knife in hand, gun or something. Somebody jumps in the car. What happens? 
no, come on. You're like, we're all like, start, start, start. Come on, come on, start. And then finally starts last second, bullet flies over their head. They drive out. We're asking the same question. Will it start, Lord? Will we make it out of the church even? Is the proof in the pudding? Can we experience it, taste it? So that's kind of the question today. I want you to be thinking about that. I want you to think about it on a big scale. Christianity in the world today as we know it, I hear often, I've thought this as well. It's just so bad. It's just so bad. It's never been this bad. It's awful. And if you read history, it's not actually. It's been as bad in many times throughout history. And so that one kind of falls apart. And so I have to bring my own thoughts because I've had those thoughts too. Um, well, then what, what do we do, Lord? How do we survive? Does it work? Will it start? Will we make it through? Will this succeed? Let's find out. Acts chapter 3, verse 1. One church's experience, but I think it will speak to us today. Here we go. Now, Peter and John, hopefully familiar names to you, to the disciples, going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour, 3 p.m. A man lame from birth was being carried. Interesting. And actually they carried him every day and laid him down at the same spot by the temple, not in the temple, by the temple, the steps to the temple at the, the gate that is called beautiful. And he's there for one reason, to ask alms or money, give me money. We'll work for food, which usually means, no, you won't, <laughs> right? I've actually, I remember going up like, hey, I've actually got a job. Well, I don't want that. I can make more money standing here with the sign that says we'll work for food. Kind of made me a little jaded for a little bit. My heart's still, but he's there to ask for money, asking for alms of those entering the temple. So he's just sitting there, hands out. He's been there for years. He sees Peter and John about to go in the temple. He asks to receive alms. So if you've watched a good movie lately or picked up a book, the opening scene or the opening paragraph will tell you a lot about what is about to happen. It sets the mood. It's the old cliche of storm clouds gather on the horizon. You're like, ooh, right? Or you hear scary music and you're like, oh, something bad is about to happen. So the opening scene or the opening lines of the first paragraph tell you a lot. Now there's going to be the characters and there's going to be what's happening, but the setting is something that's overlooked sometimes. Sometimes the author or the cinematographer or the movie director is trying to make a statement just with the setting. What does it look like? What does it feel like? What does it smell like? What's happening surrounding? Yeah, sure. Here are these characters, but they're not on a blank canvas. They're in a place. Something's going on before anything is going to happen. There's a setting. There are things surrounding it, when it is, where it is. And so before I point out how Luke did this in this story, things that are easy to skip over in the Bible, because it's the Bible, you know, just skip right over it. Let me show you how it happens in a story that you were probably required to read in high school, maybe college. Uh, famous author, I won't tell you the author, but let me read the first few lines of the book. Maycomb was an old town, but it was a tired old town when I first knew it. In rainy weather, the streets turned to red slop. Grass grew on the sidewalks. The courthouse sagged in the square. Somehow it was hotter then. 
A dog suffered on a summer's day. Bony mules hitched to hoover carts flicked flies in the sweltering shade of the live oaks on the square. Men's stiff collars wilted by nine in the morning. Ladies bathed before noon after their three o'clock naps and by nightfall were like soft tea cakes with frostings of sweat and sweet talcum. Gross, <laughs> right? What, does the, what do the opening lines to this book tell you about the story? Anybody know the book? Harper Lee, To Kill a Mockingbird. What does it tell you? It tells you, one, it's hot. It tells you it's probably in the south. It's a poor town, not paved. What happens when it rains? Mud. Not just any rud, mud. Red slop. There are mules hitched to hoover carts. A hoover cart is a way of saying this is during the Depression. A hoover cart was an automobile that doesn't have any more gas because they can't afford it. And so you know what they did? They took their cars and they hitched mules to them. And not a strong mule, what do we have? A bony mule, we can't even feed the mule. So they're just kind of eking through and then you have a courthouse in the center square. And what does the courthouse look like? It's sagging, why? The story is telling you this is going to be about oppression, injustice. Any movement that's going to happen in this story is going to be difficult. Harper Lee knew what she was doing, right? She knew what she was doing, trying to lead us into what would be a story about injustice, what would be a story about good and evil and how we see other people. And so that just opening setting lets you know, okay, this is, there's, the mood is set. So let's go back to verse 1. Peter and John going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. So let me put it in some words that make a little more sense to us in 2022. Peter and John, two guys who actually believe that Jesus rose from the dead, are in occupied Jerusalem. Okay? It's not free. Romans are there. It's approximately 30 AD. Jesus is dead. Most people think that whole Christian deal, Christ followers, is done. It's 3 p.m. And they are just outside the temple of all places, the temple. So know where it is, when it is, there's religious routine happening. People are doing their thing. They think the Jesus thing is done. Things are going on as usual without Jesus. But there's tension building and you have to see it because Peter and John, no longer is the church staying in rooms to meet or to hide. They are walking into what will be a hornet's nest. We're going to see that in the next few chapters, but he's heading, they're heading into enemy territory, walking in. Who are the characters in this story? Who is the protagonist? Who's the main character? Who's the hero? So that's a trick question, but you can use the title of the series to give the answer. This is the acts of the risen Lord Jesus. He is the main character in the story, but there are also minor characters. There are antagonists and villains in the story. There's the man, and let's talk about him. Look at verse two. This man was lame from birth. He was being carried, and they lay him every day in the same spot by the temple. Every day, same spot, not in the temple, just the steps. So a normal day for him, waiting for somebody to come and pick him up. Waiting for somebody to take care of him, to get him to the spot. He had friends who did this for him. 
He had those maybe who took pity on him, but how does he feel about his life? Just think for a second. Like, don't skip right. We all know this story is going to be like fireworks, miracle. But think about his heart and what does he feel? What does he feel about life? What had he accepted about life? Had he settled at all? It's right there even before he says a word where you see him, the setting, the fact that he cannot walk. He's on the temple steps outside. He has to have people help him. He's outside. He's not inside. He's not connected and inside the temple for them. Most people, they would have thought this is being connected to God. So where are we settling for our own temple steps? Think about it. Where are you on the temple steps? Where do we settle? We have true longings, true desires. If you really drill down to this guy, what he really wanted. What are the things that we use that can numb us where we settle? Things like money, Netflix, food, sex, travel, video games, arguing online, doom scrolling on Twitter, Instagram envy. What's your poison? What's the thing that you go, yeah, it gets me through. If you were to ask this guy, hey, how's it going? How are you doing? Truly, how are you doing? I think he would say, ah, you know, same old, same old. Just trying to make it, man. Just trying to get through. Not thinking of anything beyond that. So pictures and uh, art and different things speak to me. And so I have a, a little thing on my computer. It just kind of gives a new picture every day. And um, this site that I use to look on him, I found this. I know it may be a little hard to see, but you can see this guy in the bottom right corner. He's holding a broom and in the middle of the street, this is some other place across the world. But it spoke to me and he has his hand out like this. He's holding the broom and there's a bunch of trash in the middle of the street. And I feel like I was like, I'll see things like this and I try to put captions over them to say what they're saying. And I think he's saying, that's your trash. Get your trash off my side. And I think the other guy's like, it's not my trash. You deal with it. Get your trash. I moved your trash. He's like, I could see him with his broom, like pushing it over. You get your trash off my side. Same old, same old. Just trying to survive, a little angry at the people around me. Physically, emotionally, spiritually, this guy, and then you want to say, and how about me? Where am I being laid down this week on the steps? What are my steps? What do they look like? What does it say about my heart? What does it say about what I believe, what I don't believe? What does it say about the level of hope that I have for life? What does it say about the enemy? You know, you have, uh, God has a plan for your life. Did you know that the enemy has a plan for your life too? Is it succeeding? Is it finding ground that it's taking in your life? Are we resigned to this place? Are we at this point where we're like, you know what? I don't even, I gave up a long time ago. I barely made it to church. Did you know that? <laughs> I kind of don't really know how to get beyond this. It's routine. Expectations or even a lack of expectations we get it, right? We can connect with at some level. Same old suffering in the world, same old routine, same old religious activity. What can we really do? Nothing. We feel that sometimes. It's okay to feel that. It's okay to say that too. But couldn't he have had something done? He's sitting at the temple. What is the temple supposed to be? Isn't that where the presence of God is supposed to dwell? 
If you know your Bible at all, Ezekiel 10, so flipping back a bunch of books in the Old Testament, you see this image where Ezekiel gets this vision of God actually getting into a chariot, lifting up into the air, and what is he doing? Leaving the temple. Because they are in sin, the Babylonians are coming in, and so God has not been present in this temple hundreds and hundreds of years. So it makes sense when we read the next verse. Verse three. So he sees Peter and John and he doesn't say, hey, can you get me in there so I can get healed? What does he say? Give me money. That's all I got, man. I'm just trying to make it through. Give me money. It's completely logical. If you don't expect that there's another option, Money will certainly do. We can do a lot with money until it runs out. So he can't participate in religious activity because of a twisted interpretation of God's law. Actually, back then, if you were lame or had some part of you that wasn't working, whatever they had wrongly interpreted, you can't even come in here. So why is the guy on the steps? That's as far as he can get. Nobody will let him in. He's not allowed to go in and worship. He couldn't bring an offering or sacrifice if he wanted to, even though God's presence is not in there. He still couldn't even participate in just everyday church. You're not allowed. You're out, outside on the steps. This man has a lot in common with us. And we're going to get to the miracle, but I think we should connect with where he is first. The miracle is important and it's going to be shown to be powerful but it's a window. In fact, let's say it's the steps. The miracle will be steps to something else, not the thing itself, okay? So let's look at the other people in the story as well, because there are others. There's Peter and John as well. Verse four, Peter directed his gaze at this man and as did John and said, look at us right here, look at us. He fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, and you could, if you have sound effects in your Bible, I do sometimes. <laughs> wah, wah, wah. That's what I hear right here. I actually don't have any silver or gold. You imagine the guy's face? Ugh. Yay. What do you got for me? But what I do give, what I do have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. Then he took him by the right hand and raised him up. So right away, my thoughts are directed to the fact that Peter and John see this man. Why is that important? How many years has this guy been laid at the temple steps? His whole life. Do you think Peter and John knew this man? I think so. Maybe Thursday was their day to go help him, bring him over. But for some reason, and we know the reason, they see him. Reminded me of the story in the, in the New Testament, in the Gospels, where this woman comes into this Pharisee's house and they're having a meeting with Jesus. It's a really important meeting. We want to talk about important things. And she comes crawling in and she's not a good person in their mind. She's a sinner. How could she be here? And she's washing Jesus' feet. And all the Pharisees, all the religious, all the church people are going, how could you let her in there? And you know what Jesus says to him? His name is Simon. He says, Simon, do you see her? Well, yes, here she's right there. No, do you see her? Do you see this woman? Peter and John see 
this man. This is about seeing, learning to see the world in a different way, but it's also about the guy looking at them as well. Ministering to a world that doesn't know Jesus, let's just say it, it's difficult. It's hard, isn't it? You can't just go out there, stand on a corner and say, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, this needs to happen. You need to be saved. People don't just respond. The guy needed to look at them. And so he looks first quick, right? Why? Oh, hey, they're paying attention to me. Money. I'm going to get a big handful of coins here. So he looks. They're like, no, no, look at us. Look at who we are. Do you know who we are? Do you, rep- do you recognize us? Do you remember us hanging around this area with that guy? Jesus of Nazareth, look at us. Look at who we represent and what we have to offer you. So the man looks. And what Peter says, you cannot skip over this, is quite startling. He says, I don't have any money. Think about that for a second. Is that true? If you know anything about this story or the one we talked about last week, remember the the story last week? All the new believers, 3,120 people. That's a good-sized church, okay? That's like four, four and a half times our size. That's a huge church. You think they don't have any money? They got money. They told us last week they have money. What are they doing? They're selling their stuff to provide. There are people in the church. They were selling as each person had need, listening to the Holy Spirit. I think I should sell something. I think I should give. They're giving. So... I don't believe you, Peter. I don't, uh, you do have money. So what else is going on here? In fact, I actually believe, like here's, here's my scenario. Peter turns to John, and if, if you're 2022 and we have somebody out on the street, let's just paint a picture. A young mom, middle of February, no jacket, little three-year-old standing on Huff. What are we going to do? I don't have any money or any clothes or any access to any of those things, but bless you in the name of Jesus. Honk, honk. Will we do that? No way. I think Peter said, John, run back to the group, take up a collection, couple bucks, get some clothes, get a couple loaves of bread, maybe get that, what's his name, that guy that's good talking to people? Um, John. He goes, I'm John. He goes, no, no, the new John. He goes, oh, I'm the old John now? He's like, no, just go and get him. That's, my, that's how I imagine these conversations and the thinking. He's not just, they're not just like robots, like here's what we do. I think they probably thought that. Maybe we should go and get, we do actually have access to some things, which tells us there was a pressing motivation, a leading from the spirit not to do that, but to go straight to what they do. So he says, look at verse six again, I don't have any silver and gold, but what I do have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, grabs him by the hand. So what can we, I'm talking us now, give to the world stuck on the stairs of the temple? What do we have to give? They're stuck in the same old routines of life. They actually know enough about this to have weighed it, measured it, and have found it wanting (laughs) and have said, see ya. What do we do? Got to change our strategy, right? Got to get better. Get better talking to people. Figure it out. All we have to give is Jesus. 
The, the, word, the scripture reminds us again, that's still all you have. It's still the greatest thing ever. Jesus. I got a, an email from some people who used to attend here 10 years ago, and they caught us online a little bit, and they were talking about a memory they had of singing up in the chapel when the church was up there. They said, we remember singing this song, Knowing You, Jesus, There Is No Greater Thing. You're my all, you're the best, you're my joy. And they were just sending that back to say, keep talking about Jesus. All we have to give is Jesus. So in current thinking about ministry though, if somebody actually did that to the mom and the little three-year-old on Huff, we might think that they're like those people that glue quarters to sidewalks, which I have a family member who did that. Used to watch people walk by pick it up, not be able to pick it up. And they'd be like, ha ha ha. Or anybody ever getting, uh, ever received a hundred dollar bill that you open up and turns out to be a Jesus tract? Ever seen those? Who came up with that? Stupid. Stupid. Like that, you'd be like, this is so dumb. Why are you doing this? So we actually were a little smarter and we're like, no, no, let's minister to people. Let's actually provide for them. And then let's wait, let's wait, let's wait. Let's wait years and years and years. And then, then maybe, maybe, maybe we'll bring up Jesus, which I don't think that's the right way either. How do we do this? How do we show people that Jesus is the most valuable thing in the world? It brings up another question too. Are there other people around the Temple Mount or in Jerusalem that need healing? <laughs> Do they get healed at this moment? Why doesn't Jesus heal everybody? Why doesn't he heal everybody? It would be way cooler. I know that's not a correct way to say things, but be way cool, Jesus, if we could actually talk to people about you and say, and he's powerful. Can I tell you about Jesus? Are you? Are you sick? Is there anything going on in your life? Are there finances or whatever? We're going to pray right now. And in the name of Jesus, all those things are going to be fixed. And as much as I've enjoyed good movies that are Christian in nature, some of the ones that are the most difficult to believe is when the guy finally accepts Jesus, he gets the job, the house, the wife, everything's great, right? And it brings us to tears and we're like, yeah, that's awesome. And it is awesome, but it's also not reality all the time, is it? Why doesn't everybody get healed, Lord? Lisa mentioned a book to me and I'm reading it. And so I'm not going to give away the plot, but I'm just going to give you the premise because it's actually on the cover of the book. Uh, this guy named Mitch Album. The book is called The Stranger in the Lifeboat. Billion dollar, whatever, yacht or something. This guy, billionaire, not a billion dollar yacht, but billionaire who has a yacht, blows up. All these important people are killed. And then there's a lifeboat left of like 10 of them. And it's the owner of the yacht. And then all the people who worked on the yacht or served people, none of the important people survived. They're in the water for three days. They see somebody floating. And the opening line, remember we talked about opening lines? The opening line says, when we pulled him from the water, he didn't have a scratch on him. And they asked him, who are you? He said, I'm the Lord. They're like, what? He goes, haven't you been calling me? They're like, this is, and so there's this beautiful tension in the book that you feel where you're like, because you hear them. If you're the Lord, why can't you fix this? Why'd you let this happen in the first place? Why don't you get us out of this? 
really beautiful narrative, the stranger in the lifeboat. But it's the same tension here. Why just this guy? Why not others? We can jump right to, and I've heard this passage preached, we need to be seeing people healed and this will be great. This is what God does. And it is. But there are plenty that don't have that story. And so what do we do with that? Philip Yancey said this as he looked at scripture and it's whole. He said, looking closer, I detected a pattern of God as the reluctant intervener in history. God waits, chooses a partner, moves with agonizing slowness, does a few miracles, then waits some more. Then in the gospels, supernatural activity bursts out with power radiating from Jesus. Yet Jesus too intervened selectively performing miracles. And listen to this last part, not as a cure all, but as a sign of God's rule, as the sign that the King was there. I'm reading another book called Paradoxology. I forget the author, but it's a fabulous book. If you want to know my growth edge right now, it's these questions. How can this end this? How can this be good? Paradoxology says, how can God be omnipresent and yet so sometimes absent? <laughs> how can he be all powerful and yet he can't fix this? How can he in the parable of the good Samaritan get on us for walking by the guy in the ditch, and yet he seems to walk by plenty of people. And you may be like, oh, you shouldn't do that. Yes, you should. That's the premise of that book, Paradoxology. It's the deep things of God. You will actually find greater intimacy as you lean into those. He talks about the Job paradox, the God who is actively inactive. Yeah, thanks. But as you start to read it, and you hear why he says, yeah, but Job points to another innocent who will suffer. Job suffered. He didn't volunteer. There will be another who will come. He will be perfectly innocent and he will volunteer to suffer for us. You're like, oh, well, that's a little deeper than I just feel like Job today. It's so difficult, right? There's no guarantee, even in this story, that Peter and John reaching out their hand, that it's going to work. If it doesn't work, is the gospel any less true? No. In fact, that story already happened. The disciples went out to minister in Jesus' name. He's actually still on the planet. His feet are on the ground. And they come back and they say, didn't work. What, what are we doing? So there's no guarantee that it'll happen. But... We still take the risk. We still take the risk. And Peter and John take the risk. Look at verse seven one more time. He took him by the right hand and raised him up. And I want you to picture a guy who has been on the ground for 20, 30 years, who doesn't have muscles in his legs and they are pulling him off the ground. Nothing's happened yet. They're, they're lifting him. There's a risk they're taking. They're listening to the Lord. One thing I will say is, a, I think, is an important caveat. Peter and John have been with Jesus for three years. They have three years of relationship under their belt. They have three years of being shaped and refined and chiseled by the Lord Jesus. So they're not painting by numbers here. They're acting from a relationship that they have, which probably gives you a clue as to why they know what to do in this moment. Why they know to say, no, we don't have any money. Shh. 
But what we do have is Jesus. It's important. All right, resurrected Jesus, we just stuck our neck out for you. What happens next? Next verse. Actually, last half of verse 7. Immediately, his feet and ankles were made strong. Do you think Peter and John at this moment went, (laughs) we're so glad that this one worked, Lord? I think so. I think also for us, sometimes when we see somebody actually consider what we're saying about Jesus to be true, we're like, really? (laughs) Do you really believe? What do you mean? Okay, okay, okay. Somebody's actually believing in the things that I believe in. It's, It's phenomenal. It's supernatural. But I think they probably breathed a sigh of relief. Verse eight, and leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them. First time. First time, a lot of first times there, but an important one. In a minute, I'll tell you about it. Walking and leaping and praising God. Something's happening in this guy's heart too. Big change. What about the people? All the people saw him walking and praising God, recognized him as, we know that, we know that guy. He's been sitting by the gate. I don't look at him on purpose. They're people too. We know him. He's the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for money all the time. I've given him money. I've avoided giving him money. I know him. And they were, remember we talked about last week, awe and wonder, something that's awesome. They were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. So as we said, there's other people around that probably needed healing. This guy His number was drawn in heaven, however that works. (laughs) He got it on this side of, he got healing on this side, okay? Healing happens on the other side, no matter what, if you know Jesus, but he got healing on this side. So back to that previous big, huge question, you may have run into this question with people. How does God deal with pain and suffering? And why doesn't he always just, why doesn't he just do it? So here, let me give you a short-sighted, shallow way to approach this passage. You ready? It would be to say this. Well, there it is. There it is. Those, they believe in Jesus. Jesus is real. If I pray for somebody and I got enough faith, it's going to work. It's going to work, right? People will be up and heal. And if not, what's wrong with you? What's wrong with your faith? What's wrong with your church? What do you mean you don't see healings in your church? What's wrong with your church? That's short. That's swimming in the kiddie pool. Okay? May I encourage you to go out into the deep. And I mean, when you swim out and you can't see the bottom anymore and it's dark down there. And you know that where you, if you've been swimming in the ocean and it's warm, 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 and then you get out a little far enough and now your feet are cold and you're like, okay, no, thank you. (laughs) You get back to the warm water. It's like, that's where the sharks live down there. (laughs) Push out into the deep, out of the kiddie pool. And I'll say this too, because I've heard this a lot and I've heard this and I've thought this as well. It's so easy for us to take the bait in our current culture and society to say, well, we're just going to hell in a handbasket. It's worse than it's ever been. And the Lord would say, really? Read history. It's been worse than it's ever been many times. 
and I have decided that you would live in Winona, that you would live now. It's the best time for you to be here. I have, I am doing amazing and wonderful things. I've said this many times and I don't give a lot of directives from up here, but I'll say this for those of you with kids. Don't tell your kids, I don't know how you're going to do it. It's just getting so bad. You tell them God decided you would be born now. He's got amazing plans for you. He's going to use you for his glory. He's going to do amazing things. No matter what is happening around us, we can trust if we push out into the deep water, the shallow water says, well, he didn't heal. He's not doing it. Look at this. We're all going to hell. Everything's awful because we don't have the right leaders in place. And we just need to get back to morality. It would be better if we, some things that are true. Yeah, sure. But deeper, deeper. Let's go deeper. I want to show you one thing because I love this. You know, who's writing this with the Holy Spirit? A doctor. Luke is a physician. He's writing about healing. Do you think Luke knows something about having people, seeing them be healed by the power of Jesus and also seeing people that he cares for? On a, I bet even at this time when he was writing this, I bet you he had a few patients where it was like, yeah, they're just not getting better. And I've given them all the care that I know how to give them from science and medicine. And I've prayed for them. And Lord, why not? And that some of them even die. And then he's also writing this story. So what is the Lord trying to point us to? What would a deeper look at this passage be? So I did this quick and it, this next slide is not meant for you to be able to read it as much as to say that's the whole passage, okay? There's a word in here. And sometimes you got to sit with something for a long time. And I needed a commentator to tell me this. I didn't find it on my own. I'm too dumb. I needed somebody else to help me. So let me help you as somebody help me and show you the word. Temple, 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 temple. If there was a song to this passage, temple, temple, temple. Just kidding. <laughs> okay. What do, we, what do we want to say about the temple, Luke? What do we want to say about the temple, Holy Spirit? What do you mean? Why you got so much temple in there? And this is what was really neat. Verse 8. Leaping up, he stood and began to walk. Amazing, miracle, wonderful. Don't skip the part. And entered the temple for the first time, walked in and said, I am allowed to be here now. Mm. I'm healed. I'm whole. And this thing didn't do it for me. The place I wasn't allowed to be, the religious structure that I wasn't allowed to be a part of, didn't do it. There's a power in the name of Jesus. That's what they said. He's the one who brought me wholeness. That's the gold. That's the deep water. Doesn't make everything clear, crystal clear or black and white, but it gives you a hint. This isn't just about healing. This isn't just about the miracle. The miracle is awesome. The miracle is the steps. It's just to get you in. So what's truly happening here? Jesus invades the temple. No, not that one. The man. The man. This is one of the other pictures I found this week. I love this picture. I don't know, sometimes you're just like, the story is just coming alive. All you got to do is look at it. No words, no music, anything. You're just like, who is she? And what is she going through? And who's her family? Who left her? Who hurt her? What is she thinking about? Jesus sees you. And he says, you are to be my temple. 
and I'm trying to tell you something about the temple system and religion and your own efforts and your own ability to do this. You can't come to me because of your sin. Guess what? I'll come to you. I'm coming. That's the deep water message of Acts chapter 3. And we're going to get into it. Peter's actually going to tell you that in the next few chapters. Next week's Worship Sunday, I encourage you to be here. A really sweet time. If you want to invite somebody, awesome, awesome Sunday to bring somebody to. The next week, we'll jump back into this passage. But God's doing something here. Taking them deeper. And notice, people don't start running up and going, me too, me too, heal me too, me too. He's trying to tell you something about God and what he does and how he works and what he wants to do with people. The last verse there, verse 10. People were filled with wonder and amazement. That miracle were steps to other people's hearts. Somebody reminded me in between services, Johnny Erickson Tata. She went forward for healing many times. And she finally realized the Lord was trying to tell her something. I'm going to use this in your life to minister to other people. Not going to happen here. Okay, Lord. Okay, that's why then. That's why. People saw this man healed. <clears throat> steps to their heart. Steps to their temple. The story is about the acts of the risen Lord Jesus. He is the main character. He is the hero. He wants to be the hero in your life. This story is to remind you of his great love for you to come to you, not to ask you, get up in your deadness. Come on. If you really think about it, if you work hard, you can do it. You can do it. You can do it. Just work harder, harder. Be religious. Be holy. Jesus says, I'm coming. I'm coming to you. He comes and gets us. Are you laying on the steps just outside the temple? Are you a part of the legalistic and religious structure of the temple that has you imprisoned and anybody else that you lead down that path? Maybe you're Peter. Maybe you're John. And you're like, I know Jesus. I've never been out there though. No way am I going to pray for that person for healing. Or say this to them in a conversation. I'm not stretching out my hand to that. No way. What if it gets slapped? What if it gets slapped? Are you like the crowd who's standing back? Or Theophilus? Hmm. I don't know. Is this real? Will it stand up? Amen. Get him, girl. If, is the pudding as good as the word of God tells you it is. Can it truly satisfy? Jesus says, have a bite. That's the worship team and those who are serving communion to come forward. We're going to come to the table now. If you know Jesus, and what I mean by that is not know about him, but you've actually said, you know what? I am toast without him. He has paid for my sins. I believe in his life, in his death, and his resurrection. I've surrendered to him. Join us today at the table. But if you haven't, see it as an invitation. Jesus is saying, come to the table. Why don't you get off those steps? I am reaching my hand out to you to pull you into my presence. I want to take up residence and live in your heart to be a part of your life. 
The Bible is one story. It is not two books, one old, one new. You may have felt that way. I've thought that way at times and sometimes. And maybe if you're in the middle of reading the Bible in one year with me, some of you are doing that and you're in numbers and you're like, uh, please, please get us through this. And do I admit that when I'm sometimes listening to it in the Bible app and I get to the names and all the different things that it maybe I speed it up to 1.5? Maybe. <laughs> totally. When I get to some of those passages, I'm like, ah, oh, Lord. You know, but then all of a sudden it, he dials it in and you start to see the purpose. And I'm like, okay, 1.25. I'll slow you down a little bit. I get it, but it's one book. In Old Testament stories, point to New Testament stories. New Testament stories point back to Old Testament stories and they're all one narrative. And the one narrative is of a God who has come to you in Jesus. The temple system was to point the way to the fact that we need him. It was to point the way to the fact that we could never be completely clean on our own. Even if we brought the perfect sacrifice, what happens the next day when we sin? Shoot, I gotta kill another lamb. I got to bring another pigeon or dove or whatever. What am I got? Lord, this is so many. It was to bring us to this place of I really need a, I need a, I need a perfect solution. I really need a permanent change to my heart, don't I? Can you do that, God? When you're asking those questions, he's like, yep, 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 yep. Temple system's working. It's, it's working. Isaiah got it, listened, and when he wrote this about this table, he was despised and rejected by men. This is 400 something years before Jesus would be crucified. He was a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. There's almost a holy pause in between these verses, but surely Surely, if you've listened to Handel's Messiah, I think that's right. There's this part where surely, like the, the word is just said it almost in this breath. Surely he has borne our griefs, carried our sorrows. Yet we thought he was being rejected by God. What did he do? Must have been something really bad but he was pierced for our transgressions. That soldier standing at the foot of the cross was like, he's, he's doing this for me, crushed for my iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace and with his wounds, we are healed, parentheses, if you say yes. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. Nobody argues with that. Nobody argues with that. 30 second conversation will get somebody to agree with you on that. Everybody's turned to his own way. And yet the Lord has laid on him those sins, that iniquity of the whole world. So as Jesus took bread Bless you. 
took bread, he blessed it and broke it, gave it to the disciples and said, take and eat. This is my body. Let's take together. place with the Father. Thank you, Father, that we're here. Finally, finally we're here. Thank you. He said, drink of it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Let's partake together. Lord, we say again today, we want to build our life on you, Jesus. Nothing else. Nothing else. Lord, would you get us off the steps, invade our hearts, wake us up from our same old, same old. Lord, as believers, let us truly believe that once again, maybe, you are all the world needs. We bless you, Lord. We thank you for this time. Would you minister to us as we sing together? Amen. Why don't we stand as we sing?